I want you to close your eyes. Unless you're driving, then you should definitely keep them open. But try to really take in the sounds of all of these creatures. Oh, a lizard. Hi, lizard. Yeah, there is a lot of wildlife here. Squirrels and snakes and uh, Oh, I just heard something splash in the water. You can tell I'm a city person. I'm like, ooh, animals! <laughs> We're walking on a dirt path along the edge of a pond. It's a hot August morning, and it's dry. The summer monsoon rains that usually start in July are running late this year. But this place is lush with sandbar willows and arrowweed and cattail stands. I was marveling that this grass is like taller than me by several feet. It's so beautiful. It's like you wouldn't know you're in the middle of the desert. Totally. You would never know this was here just driving by. I'm here with my colleague Savannah Marr and Stephen Rowe Lewis, the governor of the Gila River Indian community in a wetland about 40 miles south of Phoenix. Historically, the water that runs through here is the lifeblood of the community, a nation of Akimel, Atham, and Peeposh people who've been farming this land and building their lives and economies around desert rivers, streams, and washes for centuries. In the late 1700s, as early as, as, as uh, Mexican and even Spanish explorers, when they passed through here, and this is documented, they saw an abundance of produce that we were producing along the Gila River melons, beans, uh, corn, squash. But for the better part of the last 150 years, there was almost no water flowing through this riverbed. I mean, what about for you, Governor Lewis? Like, this must just, like, the landscape must look so different from when you were growing up. It, It does. Just seeing all of our indigenous plants and trees just start start to grow again. This is how it looked, you know, before the Gila River was stolen from us over 150 years ago, how our ancestors saw this, how our ancestors uh, survived, because everything that we needed was provided for by the Creator, was provided for on the banks of the Gila River. And to recreate this for a whole new generation of community members, it's, uh, to me, it's, it's, uh, it's a blessing. But ever since the community was able to bring this water back, Outsiders have had their eye on it. Uh, how does that feel to have this, this precious resource that is increasingly in demand and valuable? I mean, hedge funds are buying up farmland right. and selling the rights to cities. Uh, everybody wants this water, and you've got some. It's, it's a tremendous responsibility. I'm Amy Scott. Welcome to How We Survive, a podcast from Marketplace about people navigating solutions to a changing climate. This is episode two, Stolen River. Last episode, we told you about Buckeye, the fast-growing city west of Phoenix that is desperate to find new sources of water to support its plans for development. An even bigger challenge in the face of the ongoing drought. One possible solution? Lease water from tribal nations that have rights to the Colorado River, but aren't using their full share. That's a story that Savannah and I have been looking into. Savannah covers indigenous affairs for Marketplace, and she's here with me now. Hi, Savannah. Hey, Amy. So this episode, we're taking you to the Gila River Indian community, one of those tribal nations with water to spare. 
Over a century after its namesake river, the Gila, was stolen by colonization, the community managed to secure a massive share of the Colorado River's flow. We'll explain how it's been using that water to restore its farming economy and help quench the surrounding region's thirst. And why the community's not especially eager to keep sharing. Because after the centuries-long legal battle it took to get this water, it's finally in a position to use the water for its own benefit. I was noticing your Air Jordans. Those are super cool. Yeah, those are sweet. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Since the pandemic, I'm just all about comfort now, you know. I'll wear a suit, and I've even worn it to the White House. I'll wear a suit with some Jordans. Stephen Rowe Lewis has been governor of the Gila River Indian community for almost a decade. He's tall, with dark hair tied back and a graying beard. Along with the pink jays, today he's wearing black jeans, a blue button-down, and a bracelet woven from plants that grow in this restored wetland. This is one of our last traditional... Basket makers made this, and so it would, oh, it's wow. made of the same willow and cattail. Governor Lewis has lived here in the community for most of his life, so he remembers when this lush ecosystem he's showing us around was just dry, red dirt. No bullfrogs croaking, no cattails swaying in the breeze. It looked very barren, very dry, uh, very arid. And he remembers the protracted legal battle it took for the community to bring the Gila River back. Governor Lewis actually had kind of a behind-the-scenes look at that process because his dad, the late Rodney Lewis, was doing most of the lawyering. I remember sitting at the kitchen table. Uh, My father had, you know, just books on hydrology and water settlement documents that were just all over the kitchen table while he was drinking his coffee and I was going to school. Here's where we need to back up a bit. Like we heard from Governor Lewis, the Akimel Atham, the river people, and the Peeposh, the people who live toward the water, have a long track record of turning arid desert in what's now central Arizona into lush, abundant farmland. Starting around 300 BC, Governor Lewis says the Atham's ancestors, the Hohogam, built a network of canals to divert water from the Salt and Gila rivers to irrigate crops of cotton, corn, melon, and beans. We were part of a long history of agriculture in this area. You know, over thousands of years, we trace ourselves to the Hulgum civilization where modern-day Phoenix is built upon uh, that that, uh, canal footprint, literally. As recently as the 1860s, the Gila River Indian community was the center of a booming grain market in the Southwest, selling their surplus crops to white colonizers as they moved west during the gold rush and supplying Union troops during the Civil War. But those colonizers wanted a piece of the market and to irrigate their own farming operations. So, backed by the federal government, White settlers upstream of the Gila River Indian community started damming up the river and building canals to divert water to their own farms. So much water that by the turn of the 20th century, the Gila River stopped flowing through its namesake community. When the river dried up, so did the community's farm economy, its only real source of subsistence and revenue. That's what Governor Lewis means when he says the river was stolen. When the Heel River was, was almost completely dammed up upstream, you know, we had no water to, to, to farm and to survive. 
we still farmed in very small strategic areas, um, but but at, at that point, you know, we were uh, our agricultural uh, subsistence economy was, was literally turned upside down, and so that really started a, that that era of of, uh, of scarcity, of really pushing us literally to the brink of extinction. During this time, the community survived on rations from the Bureau of Indian Affairs and by chopping down tens of thousands of acres of mesquite trees to sell as firewood. Because of the lack of water, most of those trees never returned. And of course, you know, at, at, that, at that time, especially Native Americans here, we weren't considered citizens. We didn't have the right to vote. So it was very difficult for us to advocate for our water. For the better part of the 20th century, the community was in survival mode, just trying to keep its people alive and afloat. Like a lot of tribal nations at the time, the Gila River Indian community didn't have the resources or capacity to really go after the water it was owed. And that's where Governor Lewis's dad eventually came in. My father, the late Rod Lewis, he was actually the first attorney for the tribe. Plus a lot of other firsts. In the 1970s, Rodney Lewis was the first Native American attorney to be admitted to the Arizona bar. Later, he became the first to win a case in the Arizona Supreme Court. That was his legal career that he devoted himself to, to regaining uh, our water. Then something happened that would change the community's fortunes. Congress was looking for a way out of its treaty responsibilities to tribes, or it was looking to help them be more economically self-sufficient, depending on how you look at it. So in 1988, it passed the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, a law that opened the door for gaming as a new source of revenue for tribal nations. And in the mid-90s, the Gila River Indian community got in on it. It opened two casinos that, thanks to the community's location not far from a major city, did pretty well. And with that new source of income, the community could now afford to pay all the lawyers and scientists and other experts it needed to make the case for its water rights. We had a great team that we put together, uh, hydrologists, historians, to show our ongoing use uh, of, of the Gila River as well. So it was history, it was policy, uh, it was law, it was science that we had to bring together. To prove what the community had known all along. That it was entitled to enough water to restore its agricultural economy. So, a lot. When federal courts are asked to quantify how much water a tribe has rights to, they make that calculation based on how much usable farmland the tribe is working with. We'll talk more about that in the next episode. Like, is that part of why you have such a big settlement? Like, I'm looking around, it's very flat, looks relatively irrigable. Exactly. I mean, we literally are standing on historically over thousands of years time and memorial of this whole area being farmed. Knowing what a massive allocation the tribe might ask for in court, the state of Arizona started settlement talks. 
By this time, the descendants of the people who stole the water were entrenched and politically powerful. So in 2004, Congress signed off on a deal. Phoenix and other cities north of the community would hang on to most of the Gila and Salt Rivers flows. In return, the Gila River Indian community got an annual water budget of over 600,000 acre-feet, about half of it from another river, the Colorado. That's more Colorado River water than almost any other tribe in the basin has rights to, more than the city of Phoenix. Governor Lewis says with the Colorado River, the community has been able to recreate the flow of the Gila, at least in this one part of the riverbed. And as soon as they brought the water back... You know, the the plants were popping up everywhere, just, you know, regenerating. Just a spiritual place, a very peaceful place. I, I come out here to reflect, sometimes to remember my father. Did he get to see this? He saw the groundbreaking, he saw the vision, he saw the overall plan. Sadly, he wasn't here when it was finally completed, but I know that he's here. I know that's, that's why I come here, uh, to, to think of him and to, you know, I know that he's, he's watching over our community, watching over myself as, as the governor uh, in these, both these difficult and critical times. This place where Governor Lewis comes to remember his dad isn't just a beautiful, vibrant ecosystem. It's also a key part of the community's strategy for reviving its farming heritage. And for generating revenue to help pay for that. That water can be monetized, and it can act, the water credit can be sold. That's after the break. Thanks for listening to How We Survive. What you're hearing is the product of independent public media journalism. On this show, our only agenda is to investigate solutions to the climate crisis and share them with you. Oh, and to have at least a little fun on the way. We count on donations to do this important work. You can make a gift to support us today at marketplace.org survive. You can also find a link in our show notes. One thing I've learned reporting on tribal water rights is that there's a big difference between having a right to water on paper and actually being able to use that water. The biggest obstacle for most tribes is infrastructure. Those water delivery systems, those um, utility companies weren't something that we were empowered or funded to, to put together for ourselves. And that's you know what a lot of the struggle is here. That's what we're trying to address. Heather Whiteman runs him is an attorney, a law professor, and an expert on tribal water rights. She's a Psalica from the Crow Nation that shares borders with Montana and Wyoming. Throughout the 20th century, when the federal government was funding big infrastructure projects in western cities and non-Indian farming communities, Heather says tribal nations were on their own. You know, a lot of the funding was conveyed to state governments to utilize to develop municipalities. Um, and, and of course, up until recently, and maybe even still, tribal communities would not be at the top of the list for priorities. So even after tribes finally secure their Colorado River water rights, they still have their work cut out for them. 
For the Gila River Indian community, that means building hundreds of miles of irrigation canals to deliver that water to farmland around the reservation. To see how that ambitious project is coming along, we met up with the guy who's overseeing it. Go nowhere without taking some bottles of water. David DeYoung is a tall, wiry white guy in cowboy boots. He is not a citizen of the Gila River Indian community, but he's been connected to it for most of his life. He grew up in Mesa, Arizona, near Phoenix, and remembers when he was 16 years old driving through the Gila River Reservation. I saw fallow land, and I thought to myself, I wonder what happened. Something happened that all this land went out of production, and I made it my life's goal to understand what had happened and why it happened. So he went to school for Indian law and policy. He's written three books about the theft of the Gila River. After he got his PhD, he worked for the community as a high school teacher. I started working for the community in 1992 in the B.C. days, meaning before casinos. Then, when the community got serious about securing its water rights, David put on his academic hat and helped make the case. After the community won its settlement in 2004, he started working on the practical stuff. How to turn that paper water right into wet water that the community could actually use. David is director of the Pima Maricopa Irrigation Project. That's the agency responsible for building all that irrigation infrastructure. He's driving us around to show the progress they've made since 2004. Got too many keys. Our first stop is just outside the southeastern corner of the reservation. We're standing on a dirt berm overlooking the spot where two concrete-lined canals meet in a Y shape. So this is the confluence. This is where the Central Arizona Project water comes into our system. That's the water from the Colorado River. It's traveled about 280 miles through the desert to get here. Where it's mixing with water from the Gila, which is a lot muddier looking, sort of like chocolate milk. All of the community CAP water. It's Colorado River allocation. Can come through this canal. Now, the community's not using all of that CAP water, but we built it so that when the day comes and the community wants to use all of its water, we have the ability to get it. This massive irrigation project has been years in the making and isn't scheduled for completion until 2030. In the meantime, the community agreed to lease some of its unused water to nearby cities including Phoenix, Scottsdale, and Goodyear. It's also set up a system of storage credits that it can sell. And that's where that wetland we visited comes in. It's one of a handful of managed aquifer recharge, or MAR sites around the reservation, where water is stored underground. So how the MAR works is simple. It's like a bank account. The community is putting water in the river, Water soaks down into the ground or percolates into the ground just like you would put money in the bank and the money theoretically doesn't lose value. And then at a future date, the community has uh, several options. One option is to deduct water from the bank account by pumping it back out of the ground to irrigate crops on the reservation. 
Another is to sell those credits to others who need water. Over the years, the community has sold long-term storage credits to nearby cities, homeowners associations, mining companies, big corporations like Microsoft and Nestle. Those credits give the buyer the right to recover the water in the future. A good chunk of that has now been sold, but the community still holds probably in the area of one and a quarter million acre-feet of water credits that it is just sitting on, that it can market in the future. Possibly to a city like Buckeye. But as the Gila River Indian community has made progress on its irrigation infrastructure, with help from the income from those deals, its farming economy has grown. And that means more demand for water on the reservation. All right, that is Councilman Davis. So let's jump out. David takes us to meet Brian Davis, a farmer and a member of the Gila River Indian Community's Legislative Council near the village of Sacatone. Councilman, how are you this morning? Good, good, good. Good. Work. good. Nice to meet you, Councilman. I'm Savannah. Mm, Councilman Davis. Hi, Amy. Hi. Nice to meet you. Hey Councilman Davis meets us on a dirt road at the edge of a long canal bringing brownish water to one of his alfalfa fields. He's in his 60s, he's got a buzz cut, and just like David, he seems unfazed by the now 110-degree heat. Farmers always amaze me. You're, like, dressed in long pants and long sleeves, and you're just fine. (laughs) Meanwhile, Amy and I are just about melting at this point. Do you want to have some water? You should. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Right. We're all going to take a hydration break. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Councilman Davis has lived in the community for his entire life. He worked for a while as a farmhand for the tribe's operation in the 70s and 80s. But when the 2004 water settlement opened the door for community members to start running their own farms, Councilman Davis says his uncles talked him into leasing some Bureau of Indian Affairs land and planting six acres of alfalfa, a cash crop that grows year-round in Arizona. You know, I saw businesses happen, you know, you start out, sometimes you fail, but you find a way to come back, and that's what happened to me. I, I failed uh, first two years, probably. But then I came back again, you know, and uh, made it even better. Seventeen years later, he's up to 300 acres of alfalfa and teff grass and looking to expand even more which will be a lot easier now. Recently, the community lined the canal that delivers water to one of Councilman Davis's fields with concrete, a simple but expensive step that prevents water from seeping into the ground, water that, in a drought, the community cannot afford to lose. That was an unlined ditch, and then we lined it. And if I'm not mistaken, you took about 11 CFS, for that field. 11 cubic feet per second. It's about 82 gallons. And then you called back and said, whoa, 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 you're sending way too much water. Yeah. <laughs> I was about flooded my field out there. I had, in fact, I had to open up, open up multiple ports or borders in order to make sure that that water didn't run over my, my canal. So 11 CFS looks different on a lined canal than, yeah, than an uh, unlined one. Yes, yeah. so right now, and as for water, as for eight and nine CFS. And that's just right. You know, and uh, again, uh, by lining these canals, you know, they're more efficient. 
you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of the farmers are grateful for this, you know. These canals are getting lined and the infrastructure is being improved. Like, what's your vision for the agricultural economy here? What would you like to see it look like? I'd like for you to see it grow. Hopefully in the long run, you know, uh, we could uh, be able to do maybe vegetables and so forth, you know, what, what whatever will really grow here, uh, watermelons and whatnot. But, you know, that's... That's my vision. Do you worry about the future of water in this part of Arizona? Yes, I do. How is it going to be in the future? Are we going to be able to have underground water? Is the water ever, table ever going to come back up? Uh, ever do late meat and so forth? I don't know. We're in this area where global warming is predicting, you know, what's going to happen to us in the future here. <laughs> This is a community that has managed to hang on to its farming heritage, even after the river that sustained it was stolen. It took a hundred years for the Gila River Indian community to shore up the resources to finally claw back the water it had been entitled to all along. Now it's got one of the largest settlements of any tribe in the Colorado River Basin. It's building the infrastructure it needs to put that water to use. But now this mega drought is putting it all at risk. And even though tribes have some of the most senior rights to the river, no one's allocation is safe from potential cuts. The timing in some ways seems really cruel, that just when things were coming back or farming was possible again, there's this other threat. Threat's there, but then again, I look at it, you know, we're federal government or whomever put us here in this land, thinking that we weren't going to make anything out of it, you know. So my thing is, you know, we survived. And we had a dry river, to it, which today is still dry. And I think we will survive in one way or another. As it's been able to use more of its water on the reservation, and as the mega drought has threatened its Colorado River allocation, the community is rethinking how much water it's willing to share. When I asked Governor Lewis if he'd consider leasing water to Buckeye, he was pretty blunt. We don't want to lease our water in a long-term fashion. 100-year leases. You know, as governor, when I came in, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure that we went away from that. 100 years is a long time to tie up an increasingly precious resource. He's open to selling storage credits, which are shorter-term contracts that allow the community to command better prices and have more control over its water. But in the past several years, the community has been more focused on conserving water than selling it. With the drought we're going through right now, we've put a lot of, a significant amount of our CAP water We've, we've uh, stored that up in Lake Mead as part of conservation. In 2016, Lake Mead, the reservoir created by Hoover Dam that provides water to more than 25 million people in Arizona, California, and Nevada, had fallen to critical levels. We're following a developing story that could mean less water that you can use. The water level out at Lake Mead is at a record low and is going to continue to drop. The only time it's been this low was first when it was filled, when Hoover Dam was built. Lake Mead has receded so far that tourists can now hike a mile across the desert to examine what's left with no water in sight. The Gila River Indian community made an agreement with the federal government. 
Instead of storing some of its Colorado River water underground, it would leave it in the reservoir, initially 10,000 acre-feet, and get $1.7 million as compensation. And since then, the community has made more of these conservation deals, all told leaving more than 730,000 acre-feet in Lake Mead. Toward the end of our irrigation tour, David DeYoung pulls off onto a dirt road where a construction crew is digging a deep trench. Long sections of bright blue pipe, four feet thick, line the road. So what you see going on right now is the excavator is, is excavating the trench for the pipe. We're putting in about 250 feet a day. When finished, this nearly 20-mile pipeline will bring reclaimed wastewater from the cities of Mesa and Chandler to the reservation. We then can put it into the canal that serves 95% of the community's agricultural land, giving us great flexibility into how the water will be used and where it will be used, and at the same time be able to leave Colorado River water in Lake Mead to help prop up the lake and conserve In exchange, the federal government is funding this $83 million project. The community also has plans to cover about 20 miles of its canals with solar panels to reduce evaporation and provide clean energy, one of the first projects of its kind in the country. When we're at the table, we we bring innovations. Again, Governor Stephen Rowe Lewis. We're doing everything we can to model um, very responsible behavior in regards to how we, are, um, how we are using water both on the reservation, how we're storing water, how we're conserving water as well, how we're uh, utilizing technology. The Gila River Indian community isn't responsible for the mega drought or for the decades of poor management decisions that got the Colorado River Basin into this mess. Still, there's pressure on the community to be the most responsible and the most generous and conservation-minded. With this water, it's been entitled to all along, but only just secured the rights to use. So that when the system is forced to make cuts, no one will have a reason to point a finger at the Gila River Indian community. We have to look at ways where we're proving that we're actually um, conserving the water, we're using the water responsibly, and we want to make sure uh, that, as my father always told me, that there's ongoing vigilance even though we have a water settlement that you would think would be uh, protected as federal law, but because of the worst drought in over 1,200 years, we want to make sure that there's not a second taking of our water. So tribal water is not the silver bullet that's going to save parched desert towns like Buckeye, at least not the Gila River Indian community's water. But tribal nations can be a big part of the solution to the crisis on the Colorado River, if their rights to the river are respected. The Gila River Indian community has one of the largest and most comprehensive water settlements in the basin. It's a huge success story, and it's still struggling to use its water how it wants, and to get a meaningful seat at the table in management decisions about the river. So where does that leave other tribes with smaller allocations, less resources, and in some cases still unsettled and unquantified water rights? Hydrology has pushed us to the conversation of equity, justice, and basic human rights. 
we have the opportunity to set some of that shit straight here in the basin with these post-2026 guidelines. We bring you that story next week. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you like what you hear, please leave a review, share it with a friend. All that really helps. How We Survive is hosted by me, Amy Scott. Savannah Marr and I wrote this episode. With help from our production team, Haley Hirschman, Lena Fonsa, Courtney Bergseeker, and Sophia Polisa Carr. Our senior producer is Caitlin Esch. Our editor is Jasmine Romero. Sound design by Chris Julin and audio engineering by Brian Allison. Special thanks to Jason Howder. Our theme music is by Wonderly. Bridget Bodner is director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is executive director. Neil Scarborough is vice president and general manager of Marketplace. 